You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. This episode is brought to you by Outdoor Class. Outdoor Class is an online video platform geared towards making you a better hunter. Watch instructional videos taught by hunting experts like Remy Warren, Randy Newberg, and Corey Jacobson. After the hunt, learn how to prepare your harvest from world-class wild game chefs like Hank Shaw and Jamie Tagan. Whether it's your first year hunting or you grew up doing it, Outdoor Class will take your skills up a notch. From November 24th through November 28th, you can save 30% by using code EMPIRE30. That's EMPIRE, all caps, and the number 30. Visit OutdoorClass.com to learn more. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. Hi, I'm John Teeter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Hopefully everybody's doing well. Housekeeping. Uh, I'd like everyone who is reviewing this podcast to go in and for me, you know, give it a five-star review and comment. I really appreciate people that do that. That means a lot to me. That keeps me motivated doing this. You know, this is time out of my day and my business to spend time sharing and getting others to share. So I think that's important you all consider that. I'm going to talk you know, a little bit about my hunt season. I'm going to go solo today because I've actually kind of enjoyed doing a a solo podcast recently. And I I love having guests on, but I want to talk a little bit about where I'm at, my season, the fun I've had, the enjoyment, the success. We talked a little bit with Jake Illinger when I was on before talking a little bit about my season, but I've got some updates and they're good updates. So, you know, I kind of statistically broke down my season. Usually I'm hunting four to five times a year. I'm going after, you know, specific target deer. Um, Usually I'm successful, but not always. And this year is one of those years where I haven't been successful up to this point. And that's okay. But let's define success for me. I had a feeling going into the season, it was going to be a little tougher. I didn't really have the target deer nailed down fully. There was one deer that was on the cusp of killing. I actually decided not to go after him. I'll talk a little bit more about the status on that deer. But the deer that I wanted to go after, I went right after him. I hunted him two times, and I saw him one out of the two times. To me, that's success. And so happens, we put a plan together, me and the landowner, uh, who's also one of the, the partners in the, the hunting area that we, we work together. There's a, there's a few of us that work together in this, this, this area. Um, you know, it's not a large parcel, but we worked together, and he killed the deer. He killed the target deer that I had been focused on since last year. I had intel on that deer. I thought he was a four-year-old. Again, in my area, during that four, five, six-year-old age class, they're few and far between. They're the 1% of 1%. 
this year I believe was a five year old. Um, I did look at the jaw, but my one of one of the guys in the lease was able to to kill this deer, and 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 that brought me a lot of joy. And it's fun because you know knowing the story behind a deer and having history with him is really important for me. A lot of people get into this, you know, and I, I you know, it's it's different for everybody. You know, a lot of people have this, you know, larger age class, and they're focused on these deer progressing the next age class and just, you know, looking at their their live die percentages and then trying to understand, you know, growth potential out of each deer, you know, maybe the trophy management side of the house. Now, most of my clients are not there. They're, they're getting to the point where they're trying to manage for age class and, you know, it is what it is antler wise. But this particular deer in my area was, I thought in the 150s and 150, again, that's, that would be, I would say considered a booner in our area. You know, there's only a few 150s killed every so often. Um, and it just so happens to be they're killed, being killed in the areas that either I work or hunt in, which is very funny to me. And so what I'm finding in this particular instance is we had data on this deer. We were breaking down his core area. And if you watched how he ebbed and flowed through the landscape, you know, he had his core area and then he, he started to range and then he came back to his core area. The other thing I observed in his movement patterns uh, were you know, they started getting smaller. And when those does got through that high level breeding cycle, meaning there was a lot of does getting bred at that point in time, you know, the most of the population was, was in cycle. When that started to degrade a little bit, his core range shrunk back down and we started getting more on camera. He was, he became more resident. So there's a window in this year's instance from November 7th to about the 17th, where his range must've been much larger than it was uh, prior to that. And then he shrunk it back. He came back to his core area, and we were able to capitalize on that. So I think the the deer, um, I think it grossed in the 150s, uh, and, and that's all I care about at this point. Um, but really happy, really proud, very happy to be a part of that, very proud for, for one of you know my buddies that had a chance to harvest him. You know That deer is a world-class deer in our area, and, and it shows the neighbors what we're trying to do. Um, and, and, and that's my specific example. That, that's not, that doesn't apply to everybody. And there's some people that are far beyond that. You know, they're focused on trophy management. That's a totally different mindset philosophy. We're just focused on age class. And if we can get more of those deer to that three-year-old age class and potentially four and maybe even five for that matter, you know, you're really in an, a, a different game around us. And, and the quality of antlers and body size and all that kind of comes into play there as well. So I wanted to share that story. Um, I'm really happy about that. Let me talk about my season. So I'm going to talk about my opening day hunt, and uh, this was fun. So my opening day hunt was pretty cool. So we gun season came in, you know, uh, somewhere around 1920th this year, and uh, I hunted uh, not on my own property. I went to this property actually where this deer was killed. I actually went to try to go after him. I thought he'd be ranging back to our area, and I, I'd get a shot at him. So a few of us set up on him, and uh, we didn't see him that day, but I had an awesome hunt. It was really cold, bitter, bitter cold. I would say the real feel on the temps were probably in the, I would say teens. You know, so it was a cold morning, a lot of wind. Uh, we had snow. You know, I'm in uh, Central New York area, so anybody familiar with with New York State, I'm in, I'm in the central part of the state, and uh, you know, it was just it was it was a brutal morning. I was freezing. About 11 o'clock, I decided to get out of the tree stand, and this is something I don't normally do. So the way I grew up was, you would hunt and hunt and hunt and hunt and 
you ki- until you killed your buck, and this is this is my upbringing. Until you killed your buck, you stayed in that tree stand because everybody around you's, you know, the pressure and you know just their natural movements are going to eventually progress and you'll be successful. My philosophy has changed tremendously over the years. I'm okay with moving and making changes, but I'm also committed. And I was committed to this spot. I had to travel. I think uh, 600. Uh, the elevation was probably 600 vertical feet that I I traveled up. And uh, so, you know, a long, steep walk into the location. Uh, I had my climber with me and, you know, I had just, again, I was freezing. So I got down, I started walking around. Well, I snuck up on a bunch of bedded deer. The slope is really steep. So I could look down a hillside and I could watch deer moving below me. And I sat for 30 minutes and kind of enjoyed that scenery. And then I said, okay, well, let me just make sure I'm observing what's going on. You know, I'm going to go check out another area. I was going to go back over to my land. Uh, because I had got a camera image of a mature buck had, had run into my property and I wanted to kind of see if I could make it happen. So as I'm meandering down uh, a switchback, so I'm going down the hillside, I'm observing every bit of data that I can. I had rarely accessed the areas, this area um, in this location, so I got to observe kind of like movement. We had snow on the ground. That's the benefit of being in the north. You get to really see, you know, movement. You can diagnose time. I mean, there's a lot that goes into just having the benefit of snow. And boy, I had an amazing hunt out of there. Walking slowly, observing, I had seen probably over 10 deer in that walk out. And uh, there were a few deer, actually, I think one may have been a shooter. Um, And I didn't get a chance to get a shot at that deer, but just observing and watching deer move the landscape. For me, taking in all that data, that is huge because now I can observe an area that I didn't traditionally hunt or access that way, and I can see how the deer are utilizing it. And that bit of data proved to me that I need to make sure I'm paying more attention to other things. A lot of times we get very myopic. We focus on, you know, one particular area and try to diagnose it, and then we just come ultra-focus on it. You've got to have a holistic view and understand how deer are moving across the landscape. Again, if you don't have snow, it, it makes it a little bit more difficult. Maybe you're working off observation or camera data, but snow can be just awesome and very helpful to understanding, you know, what deer are doing on the landscape. So I would say one of my early season gun season strategies is to pay attention to just general movement and then focus on neighboring pressure, right? That seems to be very, you know, ideal and, and clearly it gives you an indication of what, when, and all that type of stuff that you need to know when, when you go after something and being able to cut a track and diagnose, uh, you know, the size of the track and the you know, the, the cadence or the, the ga- gape of, of the deer's walking cycle. You can, you can tell a buck versus a doe just really just based on size and anybody does any like tracking in some of these different areas, you know, it's very obvious their style and tone and how they walk is, is, is very pronounced and you'll see that. And some deer walk differently. So not all deer drag their feet or, you know, maybe some of these does have giant tracks. And so there's, there's all exceptions to the rule, but generally you can kind of understand, you know, maybe a, a buck for doe just, just based on their gait. So Anyhow, going back to my hunt. So I left the tree stand and just, that was awesome. I had seen a ton of deer. And again, being not traditional, what I'm used to, I went to my next spot. And uh, this was an awesome hunt. So I went into my property very intrusively. Uh, The wind was great um, for where I was going. And I was going to walk and I was going to stalk. I don't normally do that on my own property, but I was in a mood to kind of enjoy myself and I didn't really have a plan. So I wanted to just kind of enjoy the day and I wanted to sit up on the knob and have, have lunch and uh, not something I would do. I wouldn't even put ground scent. I wouldn't even sit on the ground because I was worried about scent disturbance. But in this case, I want to enjoy myself. So I said, you know what? This is my land. I'm going to have some fun. 
So as I walked into my hunting property, a doe jumped up and I put it in the small bedding area. It was probably the size. It's probably about, oh, I don't know, 40 yards by 40 yards, some, something in that range. And, uh, you know, area that I cut on a hillside, it's just, it's just a perfect location to, you know, co-locate a bedding area. It has the, the right amount of vegetation. I kept the right amount of structure and lo and behold, a doe jumps up, right? So she's right in one of the bedding locations that I laid out. She doesn't see me. She eventually meanders around. She doesn't know what's going on. She had heard something, but she wasn't sure. She ends up taking off and kind of going back down uh, actually towards a neighbor property. So as I curbed the uh, hillside, I look up on another hillside, which I own um, right where, right, right to the top of it. I see a ginormous doe. I mean, she is just out of this world, huge. And I'm like, oh my goodness. And I'm at the point where I'm trying to manage my deer herd a little bit just based upon the level of utilization I have from, from the deer in the local area. And she was prime, right? This is mature, like quality, large. So I put the gun up on her and it's shotgun uh, in my area. I put the gun up on her. She's about 90 yards away and I'm going to squeeze the trigger. And I said, whoa, let me wait for a second. She's just meandering. And I look behind her and there's a mature buck looking right at me. I said, oh my goodness, this is what are the chances of this, right? Now, I'm assuming it's the mature buck I had on camera earlier. So I had to make a decision at that point. Do I shoot or don't I shoot? And I have not killed a buck this season. And, uh, you know, I've passed up a lot of deer. And I'll talk about that in a second. I decided to let the deer go. But the cool part was because that had, I said earlier, the doe was in that local area. She had taken off. And the doe, not that I was looking at, but the doe had taken off earlier. She created a bunch of noise. So when that buck heard maybe me walking through or maybe saw something, a glimpse of something, he became intrigued. He actually came off the hillside and came right towards me, about 25 yards right in front of me. And so I've got this mature buck 25 yards in front of me, and I decided to let him go. And it was fun because he turned right back around, went back over the hill, and then skylined and just chased this doe around. And I watched it for oh, I don't know, five, six minutes and, and just enjoy myself. Then I went up to the hillside and had my lunch. And I said, this is one of the most pristine, nostalgic, just fun opportunities. You're on your own land. You're experiencing a phenomenal hunt. You don't kill anything, but you enjoy every second of it. And I'm at the point in my life where I'm trying to enjoy more of these experiences, take them in. And uh, next year is a big year for me. My son, he's going to be 12 and he's going to have an opportunity to bow hunt with me. And I am just beyond excited for that experience. And I'm, I'm trying to think ahead and I'm trying to get him to recognize and understand the, the importance of owning land and all the land management that goes into it. And goodness, that kid's been planting trees since he was a baby. Uh, in fact, I don't think he wants to know any more about land management at this point, but he'll come around to it at some point. But hunting, he's interested in. So thinking about the future and passing some of those deer is, is a great thing to think about. All right, let me talk statistics real quick. So previously I talked about how often I hunt, you know, five, six times a year. I don't really pay too much attention lately to the number of hunts that I've had, but I did write it down for this podcast. You know, it's more than I typically would hunt. I've doubled my hunting. You know, I've, I think I've hunted nine times at this point. And in those nine instances, I saw, I think around 19 bucks. So if you start doing the math, you wonder, you know, how many hours did you hunt? Oh, about 30 hours, 19 bucks. So every couple hours, I would see a buck on average and start doing some of that statistical analysis of how frequently or how often are you seeing deer? What is the caliber of those deer? 
you know, where are they located and starting to tell yourself a story of how deer use a landscape and why. Now, this is the cool part of this year versus the other years. This year, I passed three, three and a half year old bucks. Now, in my past, you know, my history in my area, three and a half year old buck is world class. So to pass three of them is beyond expectation for anybody. And I'm not saying that because I'm a phenomenal hunter. I'm not saying that I'm doing that because I'm great or an elitist. I'm saying that because that's where I'm at. I take more joy in the experience or taking a doe or managing the herd or doing land management than I do even taking in our area what would be considered a mature buck, which is not a mature buck for that matter, but an older age class deer. And I don't have regrets for any of that. Uh, I talked to my partner just the other day. There's a, there's my, one of my bucks that potentially most would say that's a target deer without question. And it's actually bigger than bucks I've, some of the bucks I've killed on the wall. And I decided to let him go. Now my neighbors know all about him. They're hunting the heck out of this deer. He's been on my property a bunch of times. I could have killed him. But I'm, I'm hoping that he makes it to the next age class. This is the unfortunate part about this game. You don't have people managing the same way as you. They don't think the same way. I'm culturally not in an area where individuals will push passing two and a half year olds. So shooting a three or four or five year old deer is beyond, it's at the end of the spectrum. The point is being relevant to your particular area and understanding you know, the differences. And antler quality is another thing that I'm, you know, we've talked about this on, on other podcasts of the differences in antler quality. You know, the bucks in that 120, 130 class range are, are world-class. Even these deer in the four or five-year-old five uh, age class, you know, they may only hit 100 inches. Um, we, we had a client recently kill a buck that we believe is a, a five-year-old deer, and, um, you know, he's a 120-inch deer. Not, you know, super massive. And again, I told you about earlier that the, uh, the deer that my, one of the partners on, on the hunting area that I hunt, you know, killing a five-year-old deer that's you know, 150 inch. So they all have different shapes and forms. So th- this is important. But the, the thing to mention and the thing that means the most to me is focusing on specifically, you know, what you're trying to get out of, you know, your hunting season and finding kind of, I think, the, the joy in the experience and being very mindful and thoughtful of what you want out of things. And for me, and it's an, and it's an experience. It's not about the kill. I did shoot a beautiful doe the other day. And I just cut it up. I'm excited. You know, I was, I took the time to butcher it myself and just kind of enjoy the experience of just getting back to my roots of cutting up deer, um, you know, harvesting deer, paying attention to what deer I want to kill and why. And it just gives me, again, a lot of joy. So I would ask everyone to start thinking a little bit more deeper about, you know, kind of some of your decisions and why you're doing what you're doing. All right, let's get through some, some observational data that's really, really important. So we're going into, I'll call it the dark period. The dark period is when the deer are, they're not breeding. They're resuming some schedule of, I guess, maintenance. Because remember, a lot of these bucks have gone through a tough hunting season. They've been running hard and ragged and, um, you know, breeding does and obviously feeling the human pressure of hunting. And they're trying to regain. And they're going to be seeking, you know, food sources that are beneficial. But they're more secluded. They're going back to these roles, usually after, right around usually November 23rd, in in my area specifically, um, you're noticing these deer start to move much, much less. And in addition to them moving much less, their short movements are in specific areas. And this is what I want you to pay attention to. 
This is really important for hunting. This is really important for strategy. You're going to get a lot of does. If they're unpressured, they're going to start to really focus on food sources hard. Um, they've also been run ragged. Don't think that these deer, you know, that the does specifically have gotten pushed around all over the place. They have. And that degrades. That makes their uh, their fat content degrade. Uh, but or do recognize that they're going to be in a position where they need to start to think about the maintenance period. Some of them have just been bred and their bodies are going to cycle into this, you know, this gestation status. So the other piece of this is trying to find out what deer are doing on your landscapes. This is where camera data becomes really, really important because not only do you figure out what deer live and died on your property or in the local area, and you can share that information with your neighbors, of course, and evaluate it and figure out, you know, how they're using the landscape, but you're also seeing what locations they prefer. Now, the most important thing this time of year is deer are trying to reduce their metabolic state. Um, their metabolic state stays its homeostasis. It stays the same, but they're not moving as frequently. They don't, they're not exerting energy beyond that static state. They're trying not to. So if they can co-locate themselves near a high-value food source and they have the security cover that they need, that's going to be a preferred location. Those are also typically areas that <clears throat> excuse me, do not have human disturbance. And human disturbance is huge right now. They felt the pressure. They understand where the status is, and they understand necessarily what they have to do in order to survive through these tough, tough winter months. I mean, in my area, you know, we get 100 inches of snow. In fact, Buffalo, New York, and some of these areas out west, you've already gotten a ton of snow. I mean, Buffalo got six feet recently. So you're getting some of these areas that have a huge snow load, and that puts a major dampener on the on the deer and the deer situation. The, the other piece of this is... Um, you know, thinking about, you know, the usable space in your landscape. And usable space is a term that I don't know if I've defined in this podcast, but it basically is areas that function highly for a particular purpose and the seasonality of that. So as the deer transition from, you know, high forb content, a lot of biomass from that summer months, this is in my area, so this would be in the north, um, into those fall, we're focusing on just material, woody material that's available because Everything else is senesce. You know, leaves have fallen, uh, plants have died. The available food is in woody content. And woody content isn't necessarily as palatable as people may think. Um, so, you know, you're starting to look at the, the space on the landscape where it has the most useful habitat for deer. And a lot of people wonder, like, what does that look like? And I'll kind of give you kind of a rough percentage. Now, most of the properties I want to go on to, and I'll give you some percentages. These are things that I work off of. Uh, a, a little bit unscientific, but I want at least 30 to 40% of a property, it depends on its size, focus on having a large volume of woody material. And that's woody material at 50 inches or lower. Provide a form of food and a, provide a form of cover depending on its structure. This is where horizontal structure comes into play. So we got vertical trees elevated and, and trees horizontally. Deer want to feel concealed. And can, that concealment means you know they want to be camouflaged, just like we were, camouflaged. They want to feel that same type of camouflage and security. They also want the visual and audible benefits of dense cover. There's a huge piece of this that people miss out on. So if a deer backs itself up against a hillside, if it has dense cover behind it and there's some structure that may slow down wind or give them an opportunity to feel concealed and they have good visual advantage, that's an ideal location. It seems quite obvious to us. Um, you do not get the thermal benefits that you typically experience um, in our areas this time of year because of the snow blanket. 
So the thermals don't come into play once you have snow blanket, normally speaking. Um, in some areas where you have a lot of heating and cooling, you've got a lot of ground moisture, you may experience some of those thermal changes, and that will change the way the deer use the landscape. But in our areas, the ground becomes frozen. There's not, there is change in temperatures, but it's not as significant, you know, into the December months, etc. So creating more usable space in your landscape is really, really cool, and it's really, really beneficial. And we'll talk about that in a different podcast. But I want everyone to start focusing on the amount of woody material you have on your landscape, particularly in the northern areas. And that's going to be your resource. And that resource is going to be highly utilized and it may be not in the ideal location. So let's think about this. Let's break down a hunting property and let's think about, let's create a very dense area that has cover and it can allow the deer to thermoregulate, meaning it can help them stay warm so they're not burning up calories. And then we're moving from area A to area B. When they want to go from area A to area B, that in-between transitional area is going to have to have woody material. Now, in some instances, we've talked about putting food plots within bedding areas. That's like the really big strategy that, that I've kind of utilized and it's been very successful for me. But in addition to it, we need some woody material. And it's going to be in a bunch of different forms. It's going to be little seedlings. It's going to be root shoots. It's going to be all different forms. It could be shrubbery that's existing, but it's kind of figuring out the volume of that. And you can sit there and count the biomass or the related food source and its value. You can see how often deer consume it. And a lot of times it's like, I want more of that. Well, there you go. There's your resource. Cut that tree up, you know, propagate it, um, find more of those, plant them on your landscape, create that interest. In some instances, you know, this young sapling growth that you have to go in and manage, you can manage it with a chainsaw, a brush hog, flail mower. There's a lot of things that you can do to kind of reset it. And that's important to think about how it lays on your landscape. But having a large woody material, a woody material adjacent to a, a bedding area is going to be a resource that's actually going to be more valuable than corn. It's going to be more valuable than uh, soybeans this time of year. And it's going to be the resource that you want to hunt over. That's the ultimate resource, period, without question. They're DNA. They're designed for that. Having corn and other food on the landscape is beneficial. There's no question in that. And some people are supplemental feeding. We talked, I was on a podcast recently with some guys in Ohio, and I was talking about strategies of how to do, how to lay out a property where you can supplemental feed, you can have feeder systems out there and thinking about the layout and the intent behind that and how you construct that with food plots. Um, I would ask somebody who's listened to that podcast, I think that was with um, Ohio Outdoors or Ohio, uh, the O2 podcast. Um, it's on the Sportsman's Empire. Great guys. And I would I would ask you to listen to that because that, that's helpful for people that, that have that circumstance. I don't. We can't bait in this area. So I would recommend that you you think a little bit differently in those instances. But having the right volume of food in, in these areas is, is really, really important. I can't stress that enough in, you know, in, in this discussion. The other piece of it is is uh, thinking more about the relationship of woody plant cover and you know the density uh, seasonally. So the density of woody cover is really, really important. And it doesn't necessarily have to be in a food form because remember, you know, it's really important like when you're looking at your population densities, and this is another thing to consider, by the way, and just tangentially is females and, um, you know, female doe groups and, and their fawns, et cetera, they're going to pick, again, they're going to go back to these high value resources. They're going to want to pick the, the food sources that are going to be highest in nutrient content, right? So that's going to be kind of where they're going to start to locate themselves, which seems to go right back to the patterns that they had usually early season, assuming that you have the right type of food sources. And 
come to mind, I'm thinking right now, uh, winter rye, hardy oats. Sometimes you've got winter hardy oats. Those are very valuable this time of year. Even clover is still available in areas that don't have um, you know, those really cold temperatures. Maybe you've had a snow blanket and they can dig through and they can eat the clover. And a lot of times, you know, I don't know if people have paid attention to this, but they're not just eating the, the top of the plant. They're actually eating the roots of the plant. And that's another thing that you start to focus on is what are they actually eating on the landscape? So when you have a area dominated by herbaceous cover and it all dies and you don't have any woody material, you're in trouble. Your landscape isn't going to function like you need to, and it's not going to be as usable. And if it's dominated by woody plants, those areas are not used seasonally as much in the summer months and early, I would say early fall periods, like you'd think. So it's important to think, you know, about their needs and it's taking the time to look at it and how they're using the landscape. I also want to throw in, in these bedding areas, I like to integrate, you know, thermal component. And I've said this on other podcasts, including this one, you know, a large percentage of these bedding area cuts that I do, I'm integrating planted trees. Now, some people argue that's not the best thing to do, but think about this long-term. If you're going to hold on to the property and you have a thermal component in there, it's going to break the wind. It's going to give them a visual break. It's going to separate the bedding area into sections. It seems unsensible or insensible not to do that. So let's Let's think about how to break up a bedding area and use, you know, some options of planting trees. And that's a conservationist, you know, mentality. Let's think more about what you can provide back to the landscape. I don't like planting trees if I don't have to, but it's something that you want to do, particularly if it's a tree that's native and a tree that may benefit the environment. And by the way, you know, this time of year, for those that are getting out there thinking about small game hunting, you know, having like these, you know, aspen cuts in concert with, you know, some thermal cover or we'll say white spruce or, you know, some other type of tree that's, that's uh, benefiting on the landscape, you're going to find, you know, grouse and other small mammals in these areas because it, there's food sources in there. There's, you know, insects that t- tend to hide the leaf litter. You know, you've got some, you know, in some areas there'll be catkins and seed availability. And then you've got the thermal benefit where these animals can co-locate and stay warm and, and, and dry. And that's really, really important is survival. The other piece of it is, um, you know, thinking more about, you know, how things are distributed on the landscape and the connectivity of everything. When I observed this year how my property functioned, I would get a deer that would travel from area A, area B, area C. I got them on every single camera. I know how they're running through the landscape. It just so happens to work that they go from each one of these areas and I kind of diagnose their movement, which makes the hunting so much easier. And I keep saying this. You know, when you're hiring a consultant, the ideal state is that you're making the hunting easier and you can diagnose how they use the landscape and you can collect data on them. So, you know, every deer that's coming on your property and you're knowing how he's using the landscape because you're defining that for him. That's really, really important in the scheme of things. And it allows this time of year to kind of figure out, you know, who lived and died. And I'm right now going through the live and death cycle and understanding, you know, who's going to live, who's going to die, and hopefully planning for next year. My plan this year isn't to kill one of these deer that, that I'm hoping makes it. At this point, they've survived this long. Boy, hey, I hope they make it into January because January 1st, that's when our season closes in New York. And most of my deer at that point will live. Um, some will obviously die through the winter months or get hit by cars, but these smart deer you know, they know how to survive and, and I'm giving them all the right resources on my property to have interest and to be interested in the property. 
All right, that's it for today. I wanted to fill you in with my hunting season, my status, my successes, my failures, my observation, things that I'm thinking about. Hopefully this is helpful. I appreciate everyone who's been reaching out to me. This consulting season has been really, really busy. I've got more inquiries than I've ever had. And I think some of it has to do with the podcast. And obviously, you know, it takes time to get your name out there. And, and I don't have a massive YouTube channel and I'm not marketing myself. I don't really need more business, but the inquiries I've gotten been, have been a lot more. So I appreciate everyone following me and having interest in my business and uh, following the other people that participate in this podcast. They're just as important. Their content is very valuable to me. It's very valuable to you. And uh, thanks for following us. And thanks for giving a five-star review. I appreciate it. Hopefully everybody's doing well. Enjoy the rest of your hunting season. See ya. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.